welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 19 tonight. Jeremiah 19 is not a particularly long chapter, so you might get out of here a little bit early. But I do have the ability to complicate fairly simple things. It's a gift. And so (laughs) I didn't need you to testify. (laughs) Jeremiah 19 is going to introduce us to the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben, of course, means the sons of Hinnom. Last week... Jeremiah was at the potter's house, and God used the potter's house as a demonstration of his ability to do whatever he wants with Israel in particular, and he can do whatever he wants with what belongs to him. Chapter 19, then, is probably placed here because of the connection with a potter and earthenware made by a potter. Because the next thing the Lord Yahweh says to Jeremiah is go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests and then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I shall tell you. We need to talk a little bit about the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, or the Sons of Hinnom, because it has a really, really interesting history. And if we just read those first two verses and kept moving, you wouldn't understand why God in particular said, go to that place, the Valley of Hinnom. The gate that Jeremiah was told to go to is at the south side of Jerusalem, It's called the Potsherd Gate, and later it is referred to as the Dung Gate, because that is the particular gate that people would take their broken pottery and then eventually their household waste, and eventually even the dead bodies of the people who had died in Jerusalem. They would take them to dispose of them and to bury them there in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom is mentioned a couple of times in Joshua 15 and in Jeremiah 7. It's previously come up. The Valley of Hinnom technically means the son of wailing or the Valley of the Son of Muffled Groaning, or it might also be a proper name, the Sons of Hinnom. It ran along the boundary line between Judah and Benjamin. We read that in Joshua 15 and 18. And as we just read, it was at the entry of the potsherd gate. And then the Targum, as I mentioned earlier, identifies the potsherd gate 
with the dung gate, which is mentioned in Nehemiah 2 and 3. Now, this particular valley, because it was the place of broken pottery and the place where the Israelites, at least where the Jews in Jerusalem, would take their waste, take their dead bodies, the valley picked up an evil reputation. And then in the late Old Testament times, it was considered the site of Tophet, That was the place where parents would make their children pass through the fires to Baal and to Molech. And there were two kings in particular, Ahaz and Manasseh, who were guilty of that particular abomination. We read about that in 2 Chronicles 28 and in 2 Chronicles 33. Isaiah also refers to it and says that it is a place where the dead bodies of the unbelieving shall lie. And interestingly, Isaiah's description of it is, it's where the worm shall not die and the fire is not quenched. If that sounds familiar, Jesus picks up that very language. So if you think about what I've been describing as being dumped in this valley, with the amount of methane there would be, there was always plenty to burn with. And because of all the broken waste and pottery and dead bodies that were there, certainly there were lots of worms, lots of maggots. And so both Isaiah and Jesus describe it as being a place where the worm never sleeps and where the fires never quenched. And then Jeremiah predicted that God was going to visit the place with such an awful destruction because its wickedness made it known as the Valley of Slaughter or the Valley of Killing. Now, if you remember Josiah, Josiah was a pretty good king. And among the reforms that he attempted to bring about in Jerusalem, one of the things that he did was that he defiled the high places so as to make it unfit for all of the idolatrous worship that was going on there. You can read about that in 2 Kings 23. And so this valley of Hinnom became like a type of sin and a type of punishment and a type of misery because of the bodies of dead criminals and dead animals that were burning there in its ever-burning fires. And that takes us to the New Testament. In the New Testament, that Hebrew name, Gay, which means valley, Gay ben Hinnom, or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, eventually became corrupted into the word Gehenna. And if you know the word Gehenna, that's the word that the New Testament used to designate the place of eternal punishment. And that's why Jesus drew those direct connections between Gehenna and hell, or the place of eternal torment. I'm going to read a little bit from John Lightfoot here from his book, which is called From the Talmud and Hebraica. His comment on the Valley of Hinnom is this. Therefore, there is no need to repeat those many things which are related of this place in the Old Testament. These are historical. The mention of it in the New Testament is mystical and metaphorical and is transferred to denote the place of the damned. Under the second temple, during the second temple period when Jesus was on the planet, when those things were vanished, 
which had set an eternal mark of infamy upon this place, to wit, idolatry, and the howling of infants as they were roasted to Molech. Yet so much of the filthiness and of the abominable name still remained that even now, during the Second Temple period, when Jesus was on the planet, that even now it did as much bear to the life and representation of hell as it had done before. It was the common sink, the common holding place for the whole city. Whether all filth or all nastiness, it was all met there. It was probably the common burying place of the city. And that's why Jeremiah 7.32 said, they shall bury in Tophet until there is no more any place. And there was there also a continual fire, and there were continually bones whereby, and other filthy things, and they were all consumed there, lest they might offend or infect the city. You get some sense now of why God would say, take a potter's vessel, go out the dung gate, And go out and you're going to break this vessel in the valley of Hinnom near Tophet. And you're going to do this as an example. We're going to learn what the example is in this chapter. But in later chapters of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, starting at verse 35, Jeremiah is going to actually explain to us why God is so angry at that particular plot of land. He writes, they built the high places of Baal which are in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I didn't command them, neither did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. That very same language is going to come up here in Jeremiah 19, where God is going to condemn them for burning their children to Molech, Which thing God says, not only did I not command them to do it, it never came into my mind to command them to do it. This isn't something I even considered. And yet it is so abominable. And Judah did it anyway. So now in the New Testament, there are really three primary words that describe this place of torment, the place of the dead. The Old Testament primarily used Sheol, which is the grave or the place of the dead. But in the New Testament, we see hell and we see Hades. Some uh, Greek scholars say that it's pronounced Hades. I'm mispronouncing it as Hades. And Tartarus. Tartarus is the deepest pit in hell. And we read that the demons are kept there until their final judgment. But the most common word that is used is Gehenna, translated hell. And Jesus used that word a lot. Mm. If your right eye makes you to stumble, Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right eye makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna, which is a perfect object lesson. Because by the time he's on the planet, not only is there this history of destroying and killing and screaming, burning, roasting babies 
in the valley of Hinnom, but it is also a dumping ground for all of their waste and for all their destroyed things. So there had to be a terrible smell there. There had to, it had to be repulsive on every front. And of course, the fire was never quenched and the worm never slept there. And so it was a perfect example for Jesus to say, you don't want to fall under the judgment of God because it's going to be like spending the rest of eternity in the place just outside that gate, which is as filthy as it could possibly be and which has a history of abomination against God. Mm. And so he said, it'd be better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it out from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. Again in Matthew 10, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Translated hell, and I'm just trying to stress that Jesus used this word Gehenna to try to describe how terrible hell is going to be. It is not an attractive place. Uh, Sometimes unbelievers, thinking they sound cool, will say things like, yeah, I'll see you in hell, you know, or, or I'd rather be with the partiers in hell than with the deadbeats in heaven, you know, or They don't know what they're talking about. Jesus went to great lengths to try to say how truly awful it was going to be. And he applied that warning even to the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, we just quoted it this Sunday. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you've made him twice the child of Gehenna as yourselves. Mm. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell, of Gehenna? Luke 12, 5, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Even James picks up that language and says that the tongue is a fire and the very world of iniquity And the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by Gehenna. What a perfect example for James to use right there in Jerusalem when he's writing. Because the inhabitants of Jerusalem would know that there's always fire in Gehenna. And here James compares our tongues to the filthiness, the corruption, the idolatry, the death, the filth of Gehenna. And then there was one more that I, that I did copy here. 2 Peter 2, 4, uh, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Again, it's translated hell in most of our English translations, but it's actually the word Tartaros. It's actually that holding place for the demons until their ultimate judgment. And so God cast them into Tartaruo, I think is the way to say it. I don't always get my diphthongs right. And he committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So this place that Jeremiah is told to go to has a history of 
idol worship, has a history of burning babies, has a history of being a junk pile that is always burning, where the worm is always active. And that's where God sends Jeremiah. But before he sends him there, he says, get some of the elders of the people, some of the leaders, and get some of the senior priests, and then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell you. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, because they have forsaken me and have made this into an alien place, is the NASB rendering. It means a strange place. As opposed to being your home, which is what it's supposed to be, you have so violated this city that it is no longer like home for you. It's a, an alien or a strange place for you. And the way you did that is that you have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers, nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. That's the description of the children who were burned to Molech in the valley of Hinnom at a place called Topheth. Verse 5, and they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. I have seen through the years free will advocates who say that God is not sovereign, who say that God does not know everything, that God learns what his people are going to do as they do it. So God is reacting to people. I've seen so many of them refer to that verse, Jeremiah 19.5, because the English rendering of it is, I never commanded or spoke of it, nor did it ever enter my mind. And then they argue, see, the children of Israel were doing something that never entered into the mind of God. He didn't know they were going to do it. He wasn't expecting them to do it. But then they did it. That's why it's important to know that what it's really talking about is God's intention, not what they did. He says, I never commanded it. I never spoke of it. I never even considered it. It never even crossed my mind to command you or to say anything to you about doing that. Of course, God would never say, burn your children to Molech, to a foreign God. But think about the offense that that is. God in the law has already restricted human sacrifice. He does not accept human sacrifice. And yet they would sacrifice their children to a foreign God who's not him. Can you see how tremendously offensive that would be to God? So much so that in God's great irony, because they were so willing to dispose of their children to try to appease foreign gods that were not gods, 
in a moment, he's going to say, I'm going to make it so bad on you that you're going to eat your children. I mean, God is just upping the ante for them. If you have no more respect for your children than that, I will make you so hungry, so destitute, so desperate that you're going to eat your own children. They have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. The Valley of Killing is one of the translations. The Valley of Death is what this valley is going to be called now. It's not going to get proper names. It's not going to be named after the sons of Hinnom, and it's not going to be called Topheth, the name that you've given. No longer is it going to be a place where you're going to sacrifice to your gods or burn your children. It's going to be the valley of your slaughter as I bring Babylon down on you. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. You no longer are going to be able to sit down and think about and make plans and consider what you're going to do. I'm going to bring this down on you. I will make completely void, completely pointless, completely vain the counsel, the thinking of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I shall cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their lives and I shall give over their carcasses as food to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth. That's why it's going to be called the Valley of Slaughter. Because there's going to be a massive slaughter there. Verse 8. I shall also make this city a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone that passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all of its disasters. Verse 9, And I shall make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. Now, are you comfortable with a God who talks like that. Because we like to think of God as just the God of blessing, the God who makes everything okay. Come to him, and he's going to make everything better for you. But here's a God of such vengeance, such jealousy, such devotion to his own name and his own reputation, that he's willing, when his people turn from him, to bring complete disaster on them to the point where they're going to do truly, genuinely abominable things that he brings on them in their distress, in their starvation, in their desperation as they're inside the city walls being starved out by the armies of Babylon outside the gate. 
that are cutting off their food and their water supply, they're going to reach the point where they eat each other, where they eat their own children, where they eat their own dead. And I think this is God doing it, as this whole chapter says, in response to the fact that they were willing to burn their children. They were willing to sacrifice their children to foreign gods. And that's what inspired God and inflamed the anger, the passion of God to such a point where he was willing to say, I will now make you just as destitute as you can possibly be. I will make you like the Valley of Hinnom. I'm going to make you like that wretched, stinking place. If you're not comfortable with a God who talks like that, then you're not comfortable with the God of the Bible. Because you need to know that the God of the Bible is willing to judge. And the God of the Bible is willing to bring that kind of trouble. And he is willing to defend his own holiness, righteousness, his own name, his own reputation. And that is why this is the God who keeps saying, worship me and only me. Get down in front of me and recognize who you're talking to and who you're talking about. Because you belong to me. You are just clay on a potter's wheel. And I can do anything I want with you. So I would adjure people to get on his good side just as quickly as you can. Because his good side is the Christ side. Get on that side right away because he is willing to put people in eternal torment and eternal darkness where the worm never sleeps, where the fire's never quenched, a place of just absolute agony and destitution and pain and gnashing of teeth. And he's willing to send people there. And he's already demonstrated it historically. He's already created examples of it historically. He's already laid out all the evidence he needs. And he's willing to say to the people of Judah, you're dead to rights guilty. I'm demonstrating to you how very guilty you are so that you can't say you don't deserve the punishment that I'm about to pour out on you. And that's the God of the Bible who has that same right to treat every one of us that way. And he doesn't. That's grace. Because we're guilty too. To burn your children, to mow like a foreign God who can't do anything for you in the end while you have been protected and fed all the days of your life, by the real God, the only God that exists, is such an affront, such an offense to him that these people deserve this kind of punishment. But don't fool yourself and think, well, yeah, that was them. Because we are also guilty. And we have offended God time and time again. It is only his grace and his kindness that has kept us, relieved us from this kind of punishment Because he's this kind of God. Verse 10. Then, once you've told them all that, once you've explained all that to the leaders, once you've told all the priests, the senior priests, all this stuff, then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Just so, or just in this same way, 
shall I break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired. The fact that the potter's gate existed so that people had a place to throw their broken pottery. I mean, you got to think when you've got as many people as you have living in Jerusalem and you're using clay pots for everything. You're using clay pottery for everything. Stuff gets broken all the time on a regular basis. And so there's this constant parade of people to the potsherd gate to go out and throw away their stuff. And God uses that as an example to the leaders of Jerusalem and says, the reason you bring it here and throw it away in the valley of Ben-Hinnom is because it's broken and it can't be fixed. That's the same way I'm going to break you. Say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, just so I shall break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be again repaired. And they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place for burial. They're going to bring their dead bodies. They're going to keep bringing the dead bodies. And in fact, they're going to fill up the place of Topheth with the dead bodies of the slaughter that's to come. Verse 12. And this is how I shall treat this place And its inhabitants, declares the Lord, so as to make this city like Topheth, full of dead bodies. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place Topheth. Because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burn sacrifices to all the heavenly host and who poured out libations to other gods. So the same way that they used to go out to Topheth to make their sacrifices to Baal, to go out to the high places, to kill, to burn their children, in that way they defiled Topheth. It was known as an unclean place. It was known as a place of filth and death and slaughter. And he says, in that same way, I'm going to make this whole city all the houses, from the house that the kings in Judah have, all the way down to the houses on the, where people, just common people, go up on their rooftops and sacrifice to other gods. I'm going to make this whole city like Topheth. So that's why he's bringing the leaders of Jerusalem and the priests out to the Valley of Hinnom so that he can show them Topheth and say, you see that? That's what I'm about to do to you. And I'm going to do it to the whole city. And you think your city is so strong and such a fortress and so mighty and so beautiful. I'm going to make it like this place of death and stench. That's my plan. And you're going to run out of places to bury. You used to bring your dead bodies out to Topheth. I'm going to make Jerusalem into Topheth. It's going to be full of dead bodies. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place, Topheth, because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host, and they poured out libations to other gods. And then Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house 
And he said to all the people, so now he's come back from Topheth, this place of stench, this place of death, this place of burning and worms, which, by the way, notice that it is God who sent this prophet to that horrible place. Because sometimes God is perfectly willing to send prophets into places that are just terrible to go and preach his word. I'm not speaking of GCA right now, by the way. I'm not, oh, okay. Jeremiah came from Topheth, and then he goes and he stands in the temple, in the court of the Lord's house. So now he's no longer talking to the kings. He started out by talking to the leaders there in Jerusalem, to their elders, to the senior priests. Now that he has told them the prophecy of God, he then goes into the temple, stands in the court, and now he's telling the common people in Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to bring on this city and all its towns, all the surrounding towns outside the gate, the entire calamity that I have declared against it. Because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words. So these were a stiff-necked people. And God says, because they refuse to hear my word, I'm going to bring calamity on them. Quick question. Does God change? No. No. Wouldn't that warning kind of fit the world we live in at this very moment? Mm. You have stiffened your necks. You have refused to hear the word of God. You have refused to react to the God of heaven, the only God who exists, the one who made heaven and earth. And as a consequence, God is going to bring calamity. Uh, You know, this has always been a calamitous world. It's always been a world at war. It's always been a place of sin and death and stench and burning and worms. It has always been like that. And here is God saying, I'm going to bring calamity on you because you refuse to listen to me. And yet people don't learn. People are still refusing to listen to him. People are still stiffening their necks and turning away. There's virtually nobody in America who has not at least had some passing familiarity with the Bible and Christianity. I heard a preacher once say, and I just like the line, most people have been inoculated with enough Christianity to keep from catching it. Which is an interesting phrase. Most people have heard enough about Christianity that they're aware of what it is, and then they reject it. Then they stiffen their neck against it. But they're aware of it. They know it exists. It's very, very rare for you to say to somebody, have you ever heard of the Bible? And them go, what? You know, Jesus, that whole thing? No, no idea. Most people have heard about it, But then the reason that they have not reacted to it is that they have stiffened their neck to it. Yes, I get it that they were not chosen. Yes, I get it that they were not elected. But God is still going to hold them responsible for the fact that they stiffened their necks to it. The same way that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then you read later that Pharaoh hardened his heart. God is going to tell people the truth. He's going to proclaim his own truth. He's going to proclaim his own holiness and righteousness. He's going to proclaim his sovereignty over everything and everyone. And people, sinful people, rebellious people, are going to stiffen their necks, harden themselves against it, harden their hearts, and turn away from it. And this God says, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Jesus walks on the planet and says, 
I'm going to make it like, well, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. He just uses the word Gehenna. That's what it's going to be like for you if you keep hardening your heart, stiffening your neck, and refusing to hear the word of God. So whether Old Testament or New, this Valley of the Sons of Hinnom stands as a marker of the judgment of God and how truly terrible it's going to be. Well, the people who heard him then standing in the temple, the people who heard him at the potter's gate, the people who heard him were so grateful that he brought them this truth. The chapter 20 starts, we're not going to read all of chapter 20, but we need to read the reaction. When Pashur the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, when he heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in stocks that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. That's the northernmost gate up by the house of the Lord. Ironically, the house of the Lord, where Yahweh, the God, the maker of heaven and earth, where he is supposed to be worshipped singularly and particularly, right outside that temple was his prophet, the only prophet who was telling the truth, and he was beaten and put in stocks. That pretty much tells you what you need to know about the world's reaction to the people who are saying what God actually says. Mm -hmm. So they beat him and they put him in stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. And then it came about on the next day when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks that Jeremiah said to him, Pashur is not the name that the Lord has called you. I like the fact that Jeremiah didn't back down. <laughs> after being in stocks and after knowing the truth that God had told him to say no matter what, when he finally gets out of his stocks and he's released, he turns to that priest and he says, you think your name is Pashur, but that's not what God calls you because God calls you Magor Misabib, which means terror on every side. Next week, we'll take a look at chapter 20, which is about terror on every side. Mm. Told you chapter 19 was not that long. <clears throat> Questions? I think it's interesting that in recent news, the, the world has been horrified by the Israeli Defense Force finding 40 babies murdered by Hamas, some beheaded, but murdered infants. Their ancestors did the very thing in right. much larger quantities. Right. And so that doesn't remove the guilt from Hamas at all, but we're all equally guilty before God. Yeah, that's exactly right. And even if you want to say, well, we're not guilty of burning our children. We rip them out of the womb yeah, by the millions. Yeah. It's a much more sterile environment. Right, right. We just make it, we just clean it up. But I think in so many ways, abortion 
and abortion rights, you know, the big fight that's going on, is a religion. I mean, it has all the hallmarks and definition of a religion. So, yeah, we, we may not be burning them. We're just tearing them into pieces. So, Anything else? So that was the feel-good message of the night, huh? <laughs> so good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.